Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Litbreaker. Litbreaker is an advertising network. It's a place where you can reach culture vultures, people who like books, people who like movies, people who like music, people who like art, smart people, nerds, you name it. Go to litbreaker.com and you can advertise on a variety of great culture websites all at once. It's a one-stop shop. Did I say that already? You can get uh, your advertisements up on the Nervous Breakdown, The Rumpus, Large-Hearted Boy, The Believer, uh, full stop. There's a whole slew. Do you hear that? A whole slew of great culture websites that are in the Litbreaker ad network. And if you go to litbreaker.com, you can advertise on them. Litbreaker.com. This is an advertising network. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Okay, folks, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me in a desert near the coast. This is happening in the Milky Way galaxy. How are you today? What's going on out there? What's your status? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. Uh, thank you for listening. I appreciate you being here. I have a great show for you. I think it, I think it has a, I think it stands a chance uh, of being edifying and entertaining. It could be infotaining, <laughs> uh, which is maybe one of the more loathsome words in the uh, dictionary, if it is in the dictionary. My guest is Austin Cleon. Are you familiar with his work? He's the best-selling author. Uh, of the books Steal Like an Artist, and then more recently a book entitled Show Your Work. Both are available from Workman Publishing Company. Austin and I will be in conversation in just a bit. Uh, I should mention, just for the sake of clarity, that Austin's books, as you may have gleaned uh, from the titles, are about creativity. They're about how to be an artist. Uh, They're about how to function as an artist, how to function better as an artist. And, you know, all good things to consider if you're out there slaving away on a manuscript or uh, if you're just sitting there at your computer uh, weeping and staring at a flashing cursor in a state of excruciating creative block and profound depression. Either way, these books are for you. Here's what's great about them. You can read them quickly in a sitting. They give you a little juice. They give you some good ideas. They remind you that uh, this is a privilege to get to make stuff creatively. They remind you that it should be fun that there should be an element of play involved. They remind you that input equals output. 
You know, if you're not taking in art, you're probably not going to be making much art. And, you know, there should be an element of play involved. How many times have I told myself this, both on this program and then uh, quietly in my uh, private life as I sit there in the darkness? (laughs) So, you know, it's just, it's great to have him here. And I think the other thing that uh, personally I've been taking away is that uh, just show up, do the work, be disciplined, get the pages done. Uh, And you know what? Not only the pages, but this program. That's been my approach all summer long. I've been showing up. I do the thing. I try not to pay attention to uh, to the static too much. Try not to think about numbers. Try not to think about social media, you know, and so on and so forth. It's been working. So I enjoyed these books. I think that they are uh, useful little desk references. Austin, uh, it's a great example of like the whole iceberg thing. You know, the iceberg theory of uh, literature. Because, uh, you know, Austin's done all this legwork, he's done all this research, and then he sort of whittled it down into these books so that it is uh, easy to wrap your head around. It's a pleasure to read, and uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation. Here he is, folks. This is Austin Cleon, and his latest book, once again, is called Show Your Work. I grew up in a really small rural town in southern Ohio called Circleville. Um, it's actually, it's actually more like central Ohio. It's a little bit south of Columbus, but, um, I grew up in the middle of a cornfield basically. And, uh, when I was a kid, I, I had a pretty standard, um, childhood for what you hear from a a lot of writers, you know, a lot of, a lot of time alone, a lot of reading books, a lot of drawing, a lot of writing. And, uh, I went to school to study writing. I went to a little place called Miami university Wait, and then uh, after like that, Miami of Ohio. Yeah, Miami of Ohio in oh, Ohio. I always yeah. forget that there too, right. as I'm sure the people in Miami do too. Right. Um, <laughs> so uh, when I was at Miami, I met my wife, who I've been with since then. I've been with her about ten years, and uh, we moved to Cleveland, which is where she's from. And when I was living in Cleveland, I actually met your guest from last week. Dan Sean. Oh, you did? Okay, yeah. Uh, which is a fun little uh, connection there. And uh, Dan took me out to coffee a few times and uh, would invite me when really great writers would come to Oberlin, uh, where he teaches, which is kind of outside of uh, Cleveland. But when I was living in Cleveland, I started blogging and I started making my newspaper blackout poems, which uh, if people haven't seen those, they look like if the CIA did haiku, they're kind of like... They look like uh, they're newspaper articles that have been rubbed out with a Sharpie marker and just a few words float around. Um, I started making those. I was working in a library. And then my wife got into grad school in Austin, Texas. And so uh, we came down here. I did web design for a while. I was a copywriter in an ad agency for a while. And, you know, kind of kept doing art and kept blogging and that kind of thing and uh, writing about uh, you know, creativity and stuff I'd learned about making art. And then um, I put out my book, Steal Like an Artist. And that book kind of did very well and allowed me to kind of quit my job as a copywriter. And now I'm a writer and full-time artist. Uh, and I just put out a book called um, Show Your Work. Okay. So when somebody <laughs> writes books about creativity, like sort of like when somebody writes books about like, you know, how to overcome X or Y or whatever, like usually it's an outgrowth of their own struggles or often it's an outgrowth of their own struggles. So like, 
like, are you writing these books for yourself? Like, do you find yourself dealing with the kinds of common problems that writers and other artists, you know, will sometimes deal with things like block or like lack of confidence or like fear of failure? Uh, You know, did you have like an acute episode of this that led you to really kind of try to go in and figure it out? And then it, you know, maybe unexpectedly yielded these books or was this something you always sort of intended to do? Absolutely not expected. Um, very unexpected. Um, I these you know still like an artist happened because I was asked to give a talk at a community college um, to some students, and they actually needed a title for the talk. And I had done a couple of blog posts called like 25 quotes to help you steal like an artist, which were, you know, I was just collecting all these quotes from artists I admired who said that they actually stole a lot of their ideas, you know, that they were kind of like David Bowie says, tasteful thieves. Um, And so I was collecting all these quotes and blogging about it. And so I gave the community college a title for a talk that was called how to steal like an artist. And after I gave them the title, that's when I wrote the talk. Um, and I basically, I wasn't really sure what to tell these community college students. And so I asked, you know, I go for walks with my wife every morning. That's like part of my big process is we go for like an hour long walk. And I asked her on the walk, I said, you know, what, what should I do? What should I say to these, you know, kids, you know, that really weren't that much younger than I was at the point. I think I was like 26 at the time. And, um, they, uh, my wife said, you know, the best talk I ever heard, was uh, this lady got up at my high school and just she had a list of 10 things she wished she had known when she was in high school and she gave it to us. And I said, you know, that sounds like a great idea. I'll just steal that. So I just, I sat down a few nights before the talk and I kind of compiled a bunch of old blog posts and wrote some new stuff. And I just made a list of 10 things I wish I had heard when I was in college. And, you know, since that, since then, I think like, you know, I think a lot of advice is autobiographical, you know, when people give advice, they're kind of talking to themselves in the past. And so I really felt like Steal Like an Artist was my letter to myself when I was like 19. And, um, but that all was kind of just all of those thoughts and Steal Like an Artist were really a byproduct of me trying to figure out how to be a writer. A writer of what? Know? Um, yeah, well, I, that's a good question. Um, you know, it's weird cause I do, I mean, I, I, I do what I, I mean, I kind of consider the newspaper blackouts. I, I do consider them poetry, but I never really considered myself a poet. I mean, it's, it's weird because, you know, I like to call myself a writer who draws because, you know, a big part of my practice also is making images and putting images next to, to words. And so, um, and you also, yeah, and you were, you were also a musician when you were younger too. I mean, you, you had, uh, you know, some kind of musical, uh, efforts in your, in your past, like your teen years or whatever, correct? Yeah, no, yeah. I was extremely, uh, interested in music and songwriting. Uh, when I was a teenager, I played in bands and took classical piano for years and years. And, um, you know, I, music has always been, um, Music has always been a big part of my life. I I grew up really admiring what people call them polymaths now. When I was growing up, it was a Renaissance man. Like they call it a Renaissance man, like someone who was, and it didn't have to be a man. It was just someone who was interested in doing a lot of different things. So I kind of grew up. uh, I, I remember very distinctly 
looking at the back of Shel Silverstein's book. Uh, I think it's where the sidewalk ends. Uh, yeah, there's this picture of him with his big bald head, and it says, you know, Shel Silverstein writes books for children. He also draws cartoons, writes songs, and has a good time. You know, that might that that kind of. And I got really. You know, I, I wanted to be that kind of artist. I wanted to be someone who was did a lot of different things, you know. What's and that it? even from a young age I wanted to you know, I didn't want to just limit myself to like one one artistic endeavor, which, you know, from a from a marketing standpoint is not the greatest idea. You know, people kinda of want you to do one thing and one thing well. But right, as far right. as my you know, as far as my growth uh as a I, I think one reason I'm able to I was able to write Steal Like an Artist and show your work, these kind of like all purpose creativity books for lack of a better term, is just that I've experienced a lot of different art forms and so I kind of look at different art forms as existing on kind of the same creative spectrum in a way. Like they all they all obviously have, you know, there are big differences between filmmaking and like writing novels, but they also have this underlying, you know, problem, which is how do you make something exist, exist that doesn't exist, you know? Sure. And I think a lot of, and I think, you know, the more I'm, the more I find out, that's like the problem of the entrepreneur or the problem of the like designer or programmer or even business person, you know, how do you make something exist that doesn't exist yet, you know, that well, kind of thing. Right. <laughs> and then like for the purposes of my listeners, like many of whom are engaged in uh, literary pursuits, like, do you have uh, f- fiction in the works? Do you, are you, you have like a novel in the drawer or anything like that? <laughs> I wrote a lot of really bad short stories when I was in college, um, but I don't have, I do not have the capacity for uh, fiction. I don't, um, at least not so far. It's, I don't really think in terms of character or plot. I mean, I think a lot in terms of images, um, and but I, I just don't. I'm, I'm not that. That's that's I, I always feel like that's part of the thing of when you're becoming an artist is really getting a feel for what you're talented at and what you're not. And fiction was definitely nothing I was talented at. You know, nothing that came naturally to me. And so, so what um, do you think? I mean, when you when you like assess yourself, is there one thing that you do since you are kind of a polymath? Like, is there one particular aspect of your creative life that you feel like you're strongest at? I, you know, God, that's such a good question. Um, I don't know what I'm, I mean, I, I feel like what I'm really at heart, I think what I really wish, I mean, what I really wanted to do when I was 19 was I really wanted to be a college professor. I really, that might sound kind of strange coming from, uh, if, if anyone knows my work, because I mean, so much of what I've come around to is that academia is not very conducive to the type of work that I like to do. But when I was 19, like I wanted to, I, I really wanted to be a college professor. I wanted to have that life where like I taught class and I, and then I, you know, wrote books and what I thought a college professor did, you know? So I, I almost think in a strange way, I'm, I'm probably, I'm probably a teacher, you know, that's probably what I do best. I, I mean, I really think of, a lot of my, I feel, I feel like my books are trying to teach, and right. I feel like when I give talks, um, my big role is as an educator. You know, I'm trying to bring stuff to people's attention, and when I blog and 
I mean, a lot of what I'm trying to do with my website and, you know, in my own work is just kind of let people follow along with what I'm learning. And in the process, I think that kind of turns you into a, a kind of teacher in a sure. way. Well, yeah, no, not even, you know? not even a kind of one, like an actual one, you know, like, yeah, like that's, I mean, I, I, that's a point I try to make with my audiences. Now it's not an explicitly made in show your work, but you know, I've always told people like teach what you know. And if that seems really hard, just let people follow along when you're learning because that effectively turns you into a kind of teacher. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So, okay, so let's start because Steel Like an Artist was the first book. Uh, mm -hmm. And I want to talk about the myth of originality because I think this is something that artists can sometimes, it's a trap that you can kind of fall into mentally. I think it often happens early in a career. I can speak for myself, like just to like expose my own idiocy about this is that I remember a phase I went through when I was an undergrad and I was a film student about not wanting to see too many films because I didn't want to like pollute my mind with too many influences, <laughs> you know, like that, right. which I think was like maybe a mask for laziness or like a fear of engagement or something, you know, but it, it was just a load of bullshit. And uh, I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about the myth of originality and maybe like give some examples of, uh, like you mentioned David Bowie earlier using the, what was it? Elegant thieves or whatever. Tasteful thieves. <laughs> yeah. Tasteful thieves. Um, I think what you just said is exactly what I was trying to combat in, um, in still like an artist, that idea you, you do have that, you have that feeling when you're, when you're a young artist, it's like, well, I don't want to expose myself to too much. Cause I want to like be, I want to find what's inside me that's that's original, right? Like, and if I'm influenced too much, then I won't be original. What's very interesting about this is that in all of my studies of this kind of thing, it's actually by being influenced. Influence is the way towards originality. 
And, and what I mean by that is that your originality is kind of the depth and breadth of your influences. I mean, and the perfect example uh, in film, which you just brought up, is someone like Quentin Tarantino, who has this kind of encyclopedic knowledge of film and not only uses it, but actually like very brazenly uses it. You know, I mean, a lot of his films are straight up, you know, homages or ripoffs or whatever you want to call them. But what he does in effect is he's made this whole style or this whole kind of original, you couldn't say that his films aren't like Tarantino, you know, they're like, they, they are a Tarantino film. And if you think about any of the great directors in a sense, They've all kind of done that in a way. I mean, you know, Woody Allen has talked about how much he's stolen from Bergman or any of the great, you know, French directors. Someone like, you know, my friend Kirby Ferguson has done a great video series called Everything is a Remix, where he looks at Star Wars, which is one of the most, you know, famous films of all time. George Lucas was ripping off and, and borrowing from Kurosawa and Flash Gordon serials. You know, the list goes on and on. So, I think the poet Billy Collins said it best. He said, you know, everyone's always talking about finding your voice. And he said, the funny thing about finding your voice is that your voice only emerges after you've tried to copy about six or eight different voices of people you've admired. And then out of that stew kind of comes this original voice. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's the irony of it is that people who are most original tend to have the most influences, not the least. So it's somebody who's been able exactly. to, like you think about somebody like Bob Dylan, who's always hailed as like this, you know, iconic original, but really like what he is, is in like an amazing assimilator of his influences and somebody who, you know, maybe has a, an, uh, or not even maybe, but has an extraordinary ability to absorb quickly those influences oh, and then yeah. transmute them into something new. But I mean, the more, the better is really the answer. It, and it's hard to find a giant of popular music that hasn't been that way. Like one great example is the Beatles. You know, people think, Oh my God, Lennon and McCartney, you know, but Lennon and McCartney, they were encyclopedias for what had come before them. You know, I mean, one of the reasons that Lennon liked McCartney so much in the beginning is McCartney knew all the great riffs, you know, he could play all the good songs and Lennon was the same way, you know, they were just sponges and you can just go on down the list. It's hard to peg an artist that doesn't, you know, have this kind of rich set of influences. So my, my goal was still like an artist was to really try to get people in the mindset of doing this intentionally, trying to be intentionally influenced because the whole, um, you know, when you ask people about their influences, they'll say, oh, well, I'm very influenced by, and then they'll name an artist. That's kind of a weird grammar construction, because if you say you're influenced by something, that makes it sound like it actively did the work of influencing you. Whereas, uh, you know, really influence is about, you know, good influence is about seeking out influence you know, and, and about making influence an active thing, you know, and that was what I was trying to do with Steel Like an Artist is to tell people you should actively seek out good influences and influences that resonate with you, not kind of run away from them. And what is that? And I think, it, you know, to bring it back around to that education or teaching theme, what it really is, it's you have to become a student. If you want to be a master, you have to be a student first. And then what about the difference between uh, imitation and emulation? You, you know, you touch on that in the book, and I think that's worth exploring a little bit. 
Well, imitation is kind of a learner's device, you know. Imitation is a lot about practice and absorbing. You know, imitation is part of the absorption process. So when you imitate your heroes, what you're doing is you're trying to, like, get a feel for who they were, and you're really trying to, like, kind of assimilate their moves into yourself. Like, I think it's Hunter S. Thompson who used to type the Great Gatsby out on his typewriter, you know, to get the feel of what the words were like. But imitation on its own doesn't contribute anything to the kind of cultural stew. You know, if you're just a copy of someone else, you know, that doesn't really, there's not a lot of art in that. There's a lot of mimicry in art, but it's when you take the imitation and you push it into something further. And that's when you get into like kind of emulation, you know. So instead of you know, slavishly imitating Lennon and McCartney, if you turned yourself into a person that absorbed influences the way that they did and wrote it, you know, in the kind of disciplined everyday way that they did, then you could really, you know, then you're emulating them and you're you're going that step further that'll turn you into something new. Yeah, that's a good point. It's like act like your heroes now. Like even if you're not as good as they are or were, just like act like them today. Start emulating you know yeah absolutely it's kind of like you don't want to look like your heroes you want to see like your heroes (laughs) if that makes sense (laughs) well you know i I don't i don't mean to like uh, beat the bob dylan drum but it just it just pops to mind like you know he shows up in new york like basically acting like woody guthrie singing like woody guthrie like (laughs) he's a very emblem i mean very emblematic of that sort of thing and then quickly like kind of abandoned that imitation maybe and then moved on but um, yeah, I mean Dylan. Dylan is Dylan is a. I, I think if even if you just took Dylan and the Beatles together, you would get this wonderful portrait of of what it's like to imitate versus emulate and move into your own thing. I mean, I think Dylan was a lot like Picasso in the way that he just absorbed things, took you know did did something and then he was done with it. You know, he figured it out and then he moved on. And he had that kind of chameleon like transformative thing throughout his career you know yeah it's still going i mean i just read this article in new york magazine like last week about um that was called like the weirdness of bob dylan or something yes that was great that was great i read that too yeah yeah and then then there's like uh you know picasso i've read i think i think i read norman mailer's biography of picasso i think there was one of those but you know he's somebody who's really fascinating both for his output and like you know his success in multiple mediums and um he was just a beast but he was also in his personal life uh, a beast, <laughs> and yeah, it could be really. You know, and then like, this is not a, this is no great like newsflash that like great artists can sometimes be really difficult or even monstrous people. But like, what about that? You know, like because it's you know it's a, it's of interest to me um, to make really good work, but to also be a good person. And like, can the two? I guess the two can live together, right? They can happen simultaneously. Oh God, yeah. I mean, and this is this is something that really. Um... This is something I had to work out in my life very early on because I, I met my wife when I was about um, 20. And, um, you know, I was trying desperately to be an artist. And I, I kind of swallowed the Jack Kerouac Kool-Aid uh, when I was really young. And I thought, oh, well, if you want to be a real writer, a real artist, you have to kind of be this wild person, you know, and um, you have to really make your life chaotic so you can reach into that chaos and harness some of it for your art, you know. Right. <laughs> and, um, 
one of the things that happened to me that was really helpful was I, um, I actually, I've, I'm a big, you know, I don't want to turn it back to Dan again, but Dan Sean, who you had on recently, he invited me to a George Saunders reading, uh, the fiction writer, George, George Saunders. Sure. And I got to ask him this question. I said, you know, you strike me as someone who's a really good family man. And yet you're one of like our greatest writers. So is there a, is, is there a tension there or is there, is there something to that? And he said, no, they're not mutually exclusive. And he said, I will tell you another story. He said, when I met Tobias Wolf, who is another wonderful fiction writer, when I was a young man, I had this, he called it a Kerouac boner. (laughs) And he said, I thought I had to be this wild, insane person in order to be a good writer. And then I met Tobias Wolf and he's the sweetest man alive and he loves his children and he's this gentle person. And it immediately became clear to me that I could be a good person. Not only could I be a good person and be a good artist, but by actually trying to be as human as I can, or as good as I can as a human being, it will actually help the art and not hurt it. And I think George Saunders is a person that that really embodies that quality. It's that you can tell that his humanity and his life comes right into his art. And so that's that's the kind of artist that at a very early phase I wanted to emulate. And of course, later on, I found the Flaubert quote, which says, I was you know, just going to say, <laughs> you know, if I had had that when I was 19, that would have helped. But, you know, Flaubert says you'd be, uh, you know, regular and orderly in your everyday life so you could be violent and original in your work, you right. know. And so that's the kind of uh, – that's what I've tried to live by ethos-wise. And I think that's the kind of – you know, I've always felt personally that the world needed a lot more the, – the world needs a better – the world needs a decent human being more than it needs a great artist. That's kind of on a person by person basis. I think you're doing a better, I think you're doing better for the world by being a decent human being than by being some great artist. but I don't think they're mutually exclusive. And you can actually tie the two themes together uh, of originality and having to be this beastly person to being an artist. You can pretty much trace that back to the romantics. You know, that's pretty much a construct of the Romantic Age, that idea that you had to suffer for your art and that art was all about your individual experience and that kind of thing. You can pretty much trace that back to that time period. And we're just kind of like still living with the repercussions. So, you did, know? <laughs> so did, you, did you ever uh, have like a phase? I mean, I guess if you met your wife when you were 20, you probably didn't have too much time to do this kind of stuff. But did you ever uh, like go crazy and like drop a bunch of acid and have wild years where you thought you, you, know, you were expanding your consciousness and finding what you needed to make great art? I think I ingested most of my substances probably before legal age. But, you know, like... But yeah, I mean, I, I had my experimental, you know, time, uh, when I was like a late teenager basically, but, um, and I, and I wonder, you know, I, I just don't, it's, it's funny. I, I, I wouldn't necessarily, I, I gained way more as an artist by, uh, locking myself in a, like I, my, my, my best experience of being an artist. Um, I think that when I really came into my own, was there was a period after um, there was a period after college where I had this really great professor who said don't go to grad school. 
He's like, I know everyone else is applying to MFA programs, but trust me on this. Don't go to graduate school. He said, go get a part-time job or get some decent little job and then see if you can ride on your own for a few years. Go out and kind of hold down a job, be regular, read a lot and write a lot, and then if you want to go back to grad school, you can do it. And so two years out of college, I got a really cushed part-time job at a public library in Cleveland. And so I worked about 20 hours a week, had a dirt cheap apartment with, with my girlfriend, soon to be wife. And I spent, you know, 20 hours a week going to the library and working. And the rest of the time I spent just reading and writing and, you know, blogging and stuff like that. And for me, that was really my grad school. That time to just, if there was a writer I admired, I read everything by him, you know, uh, you know, if I was, if I wanted to start a graphic novel, I started a graphic novel and I threw it out, you know what I mean? And that was really the, that time to having the time and the space to really explore was way more valuable to me than any kind of psychedelic experience. Like that was much more of a breakthrough, just having that time to kind of fully immerse myself in the things I was passionate about. And then for like five years after that, I basically held down 40 hour a week day jobs until feel like an artist hit. So I kind of had this rich period of immersion. And then I'd say the next five years were kind of an execution phase where I took a lot of those things that I had kind of like discovered when I was working part time. And then I did those kind of nights and weekends until yeah, I worked up my body of work. Okay. Yeah. And so let's talk about the actual nuts and bolts of doing the work. And like wh- where I want to start is something that I feel um, is kind of central to everybody's lives, particularly those of us who are writing. And that is uh, this notion of stepping away from the screen, using your hands to make stuff, um, like kind of like getting back to the feeling of making things with one's hands. And then you also have this idea, which I think is sort of great. Um, of having two different desks because you know it's it's obviously not about abandoning the internet and abandoning computers entirely like they're two inner I mean I, I guess some people could do that but they seem too <laughs> embedded in how we live now to completely do it and they can be really useful so talk a little bit about you know how you do the physical work of making stuff of making books and art well I have uh I actually, I've expanded my desk empire here. I actually have three desks now, which <laughs> is getting a little out of control. Um, but luckily, uh, luckily my garage is big and I have plenty of space. But I have an analog desk. And the analog desk is just stacked with newspapers and notebooks and pencils and pens and stuff. And that's where I go in the morning and I try to make one of my blackout poems or I try to free write, you know, I'll come up with ideas for the books and try to write by longhand. And then that's where a lot of the ideas are born. And then I have another desk that's my digital desk, and that has my computer and my scanner and, you know, my printer and all that stuff. And that's where I kind of edit the work into something that takes a final shape. And Sometimes I do a little dance in between the two, you know, like I'll come up with an idea at the analog desk and I'll take it over to the digital desk, play around with it a little bit, and then jump back over to the analog desk, you know, to come up with more ideas. But um, I think 
what so that's I used that for a while. Now I actually have a separate desk in my office that's just a reading desk because I quickly for someone who talks so much about, hey, if you want to be a good writer, you have to be a reader. I, for a long time, was not finding enough time to read in my day-to-day life. You know, I was spending all my time trying to write and then answer emails and blog and be on Twitter, you know. Right. So I actually have a, I have a desk now that I've tried to recreate like a, like a desk at the college library that I used to have, you know, where it was just stacks of books and nothing to do but read. Um, and so I try to, you know, schedule, I just schedule, I think a lot of the creative, I, I think if people want to be more productive, a lot about, a lot of it is just about time management. So I just have like dedicated time to each desk. So I make sure I'm taking things in, which is like my reading desk. And then I make sure that I'm creating things at the analog desk and then, the digital desk, I'm making sure I'm pushing stuff out there and kind of, you know, keeping that connection up with my audience and my kind of communities online. And then what about uh, side projects? Uh, this is something else that you advocate, which I think is, uh, you know, useful to talk about because I think sometimes people can feel like, oh, you know, I, I like the, you know, writing fiction is my primary thing or writing memoir is my primary thing. Uh, and I don't, I have to stay focused on that and I don't want to get caught up in, you know, uh, making garage band songs or, you know, noodling around or like taking a walk in the neighborhood or whatever it is. But, um, you say that side projects actually can be of use. I, uh, you know, everything I do now as a professionally stars a side project. I mean, when I put out my first book, you know, being an author or being a writer was not my day job, you know, or it was like being a copywriter or, a, you know, web designer or something. But the book slowly became my main thing. And then, you know, when I gave my first talk, that was kind of a side thing that I did. And now speaking is like a big part of my, you know, income and what I do. And, and so a lot of these things, and then same thing for the art, you know, the art was always kind of a side thing I did on the side that now has kind of become part of the show. Um, so I, I think like one of the interesting things that happened to me too, when I was younger is that things I would do on the side would lead to side projects would lead to the main gig. So when I was a librarian, I was monkeying around on the web a lot and like building my own websites. And then when I learned there was such a thing as a web designer, I thought, well, you know, good web designers, they're all about organizing information in a way that people can get at it using the web. Like, I could probably do that. So I didn't get hired as a web designer based on my, you know, librarian experience. I got hired mostly because of what I was doing on my own. And then when I was a web designer, I was doing a lot of writing, and I realized that, hey, you can build a website, but you need to fill it with content. And so... I realized that I could be a copywriter for an ad agency and actually do that for a living. So when I got hired at an ad agency, it wasn't my web design stuff that got me hired. It was the fact that I was doing all my marketing and writing on the side that got me, landed me the job at the ad agency. So I think we're living in this, in this age now where people have the abilities, if you're interested in doing a kind of work, there's not really anything keeping you from 
diving in and doing that work. Like if you want to make movies, you know, you grab a camera and you start making little shorts. Or if you want to make websites, you know, you you do a website for your uncle's carpentry business, you know, right. <laughs> just stuff like that. And you just never know what the side projects, what that will lead to on down the road. But I think furthermore, if you're someone that's really passionate about a lot of things, this kind of goes back to the polymath or the Renaissance man thing. You have to figure a way to keep all the passions in your life. Cause I really think that if you cut out one of those passions from your life, it's kind of like phantom limb pain, like you'll kind of feel it. And for me, that was music. Like when I said, Hey, you know what? I'm never going to make any money off music and it's not productive. I should just not do it. I shouldn't waste my time on music. It really hurt me after a while. And one of the things I found is like when I started playing music again and, you know, monkeying around in garage band or whatever, I found that like I got more creative that actually when I was working on music stuff, I would come up with ideas for my actual work, you know? And so I've kind of, I like that idea of productive procrastination, which is you use different things that you're working on to kind of distract you from each other. So when you get bogged down in one project, you can basically switch over to the other, you know, and that's the way you can remain productive uh, is by having a lot of different things going on at one time. You need to have like a music desk. You know, I think that's your fourth <laughs> desk. <laughs> well, it's funny that you say that because half the garage is actually music equipment. So <laughs> there, there you go. There you go. I have my own little cave in here that's uh, it's it's chaotic, but it's fun. So, OK, so now I want to shift because uh, your second book, uh, Show Your Work, is about sharing your work. I mean, I think primarily that's the the gist mm-hmm. of it. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, you, I, you you posit that there's like a secret, a, a not so secret formula for becoming known as an artist. You know, first you have to do the good work. And then second, you have to find a way to share it with people. Um, and I think in today's, uh, you know, in, in today's times, the Internet has made that easier than ever before. Um, but there's, you know, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot coming at people. It's hard to distinguish yourself among all that noise. So like, what do you think, uh, you know, is the secret of trying to get yourself noticed to find a way to, you know, distinguish yourself, uh, with all these other people trying to do the same thing? I think that. Basically, I think the thing that creators are really the the struggle there, the the real struggle I was trying to address and show your work was this kind of feeling that if I do any kind of self promotion, or if I sharing will take away from the making. That if I spend too much time on sharing, it's going to take away from the time I could be spending making things. Right. So if you're you know, I, I just knew all these artists that were really good, but they wouldn't bother promoting themselves because they didn't want it to take away from their time at the drawing desk or you know something like that. And so the way that I kind of, the artists I know, the only thing they're really interested in is the work and the process and what they really love. And so what Show Your Work is about is just about how you can share the process of what you do in as a way to get people interested in your work um, and, and how sharing your process in a way is like kind of the most authentic way to share your passion because that's the thing you're really passionate about. And so the book's kind of about thinking, 
I don't know, kind of thinking big picture about what it is that you do and sharing your work in ways that can either be interesting or useful to other people. So like, so, so, so like from like a writer's perspective, sharing process, it's just like, here's my coffee mug, <laughs> you know? Like yeah. It, see, I don't see, that's the thing that gets, people get thrown off. They hear process and it's like, Oh, so it's like your first draft or something. But the process of being a writer, like, for instance, reading is a huge part of being a writer. Like, writers are some of the best readers because that's their fuel. You know, Stephen King has the great quote. He's like, if you don't have the time to read, you don't have the tools to write. And so one of the things that um, I'm always pushing on writers is, like, every writer should have a reading log online where they – write about the books that they're reading and share, you know, share interesting links to writers that they admire and stuff like that. You know, every writer I know is a student of the craft somehow. And when I was kind of coming up, um, you know, I would, I spent a lot of time, I always knew I wanted to be, you know, a writer in some capacity. So, you know, I would go to events, you know, I would, I would, I would try to be as good of a fan as I could, you know, I would go to that George Saunders reading, but then I would take notes and I would draw him while he was reading. And then I would post it to my blog and kind of recap the event. And this is kind of before camera phones and like, you know, people couldn't just shoot video of event like they could back then. So it was like, there was something cool about me hand drawing this this guy and then writing up my notes and people that's how people kind of came to find me is because of the things I was interested in. And then they would kind of discover my work through what they, you know, they'd say, Oh, well he also does his own work. Maybe I should check that out. And I always kind of had faith that if I wrote about the things I was really passionate about, then other people might find that stuff and then they might be interested in the work I was making. Yeah. It's, you know? it's funny. Cause like there's, I think there's a tendency sometimes with artists uh, to want to kind of keep their uh, process a secret, you know, and to kind of like not let people know how the sausage gets made. And yeah, there's this kind of, I think the other thing that the book is really trying to battle is this idea that the work speaks for itself. That like, if your work is good enough, you shouldn't have to say anything about it or even really actively promote it. It should just stand on its own, which is just in all of my studies of that's never been the case. Art always needs some sort of advocate for it. Sometimes it's the artist. I mean, you know, Walt Whitman used to write fake reviews of his own poetry. You know, (laughs) I mean, stuff like that. I mean, all these people we look up to for their, you know, their artistic genius, they usually had some sort of person hustling for them on the side, or they were good hustlers themselves. But, you know, the idea that I always point to is the idea of, like, forgery. Like, imagine there are two beautiful, you know, you walk into an art museum, and you see two identical paintings on the wall, and they're gorgeous, and you you know, you're looking at these two identical paintings and you're walking back and forth between the other and you can't detect any sort of difference between them. You almost think they're kind of the same piece. And finally you like track down one of the curators in the museum and there's, cause there's no label underneath the painting. You can't figure out anything about them. You know, there's just these two identical paintings and they're both gorgeous and they're both identical. 
And then you walk over to the curator and the, you ask the curator about the paintings. And he says, oh, well, the left was done by a Dutch master in the 1600s, whatever, you know. And they said, the one on the right was, uh, that's a copy by a grad student that <laughs> did last week, you know. Which one are you going to, which one would you want to take home, you know, or which one would you, you know, which one would you look at and say, oh, I can really see it now. You know what I mean? Like there's what we say about our work and what we, you know, what we, the, the, the stories that we tell about the work that we do have a huge impact basically on what people think and how they feel about the work. And of course that can go both ways. You know, I mean, you can manipulate people into thinking something that's untrue about your work, or you can be kind of more authentic and really let people in, you know, but to have that kind of savvy in the first place is important to know that, you know, every kind of move that you make as an artist, you're constructing some kind of narrative about yourself and your work. And then you can decide how much you show people or how little you show them. Yeah, no, I mean, especially in the in the Internet age, like everything you say online, everything you tweet, everything, every every person you favorite, every public association you make, like to me, it gets a little nerve wracking after a while. And you can. But I mean, I guess really good artists are, are crafty about how they associate themselves and present themselves online. I mean, it's a it's a form of advertisement, I guess. Yeah, and they always have. I mean, even in the pre, you know, even in the days before the internet, you know, you would show up at the right art opening, you know, and kind of that whole idea of networking. I think what we've replaced is that traditional notion of networking. And this is the point I was trying to make in the book is that that notion of networking, that old schmoozing thing, we don't really have to do that as much anymore. We can take advantage of the network. You know, we can put ourselves out there and align ourselves in a way that doesn't drain us as much as traditional networking used to do. Like one of the things I was really hoping Show Your Work would do is help specifically introverted people a little bit with, because I know of introverted artists that they don't want to make those connections with other people. They don't want to bother, like, like the idea of rubbing elbows with other artists just makes them like <laughs> exhausted, right? Right. And so I was hoping that some of this book really helped some of those introverted writers I would, you know, I knew to put themselves out there in a way that's positive and not only helps them along, but also helps the culture along, you know, because I think like, for example, again, if, if you're a writer or you're a film, like one of my favorite examples is one of the Duplass brothers, the filmmakers, he had a thing for a while in his Twitter feed where his Twitter feed was only like, Netflix 365, which is every day he would pick something on Netflix streaming and say, this is a great movie. You should watch this for this reason. And that was it, you know? And I love that, that idea of like, and what he was doing in that process of telling people movies they should watch is he's also revealing his stylistic impulses, the things that he finds interesting and the things that he's drawn to. And so you learn a lot about him as an artist by what he recommends, you know. And again, this goes back to the steal like an artist stuff, which is you're kind of the sum of your influences, you know. And by being kind of transparent about those influences, you kind of situate your own work in that kind of web. Yeah, and you know uh, what's what's coming to mind for me? I just watched this documentary uh, the other night called Finding Vivian Meyer. Have you, have you seen mm. that? 
I haven't seen it, but I've read a lot about her. I find it really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, talking about like you know, you know, your work doesn't speak for itself. I mean, she's been getting all this uh, acclaim posthumously because this guy John Maloof, this young guy, like bought like her stuff at an auction. He was like one of those guys who goes to like uh, what you call like storage garage auctions or whatever, and he just landed upon this box with like thousands and thousands of negatives. And kind she, of the dream of dumpster divers. Yeah, you I know, mean, it's like just... yeah, it's an unbelievable, <laughs> it's an unbelievable narrative. And, and you know, the, the thing that's interesting to me is like this tension between, uh, and I don't know if tension's the right word, but like the relationship between the work itself, which is truly uh, accomplished. I mean, it, I think it has to be in order for people to get really excited about it. But I think what's also buttressing um, the the interest and enthusiasm that the work has been receiving is just like the crazy narrative of it. Like this woman was a nanny. And she just walked around the streets of uh, the towns where she worked, uh, like Chicago. She worked outside of Minneapolis. And she just took thousands of photos like throughout her whole life, never told anybody, never shared them at all. Uh, I think she did have some intention to share them, but it never happened. And then this guy lands upon this box of her stuff, and he's the one who is out there advocating for her and got her gallery showings and all this kind of stuff. But it's right up your yeah. alley. It's a, totally up your alley. It's like a oh yeah, I wanted to watch it for. I mean, the only the only problem that messes me up with movies now is I have a kid. So ever my my son's about. My son's about two now, so I feel like I haven't been to the movies in ages. But right. that that's on top of my list. It's on iTunes. Um, so yeah, I, I, I uh, but but that that story fascinates me because you are you wonder yourself to yourself like who's the whose narrative is this? I mean, in some ways, it's really the guy who found the stuff, you know, in a strange well, in the mystery, in a strange way, and the mystery of why she didn't tell anybody, you know, like makes the work like. I just think that I, I think that this is often the case. Like you, like to give a, maybe a more pop culture example would be like uh, the Linklater movie Boyhood, where mm-hmm. you know that's getting uh, all this acclaim and it's a really I really love the film and but you know there's the narrative behind it. Like wow, he did this over 12 years and you know you had to kind of count on the actors being there and you sort of you know it was a real roll of the dice. But it's like the story of how the sausage is made makes the sausage more interesting somehow. Or more tasty, yeah, you know. If, yeah. if, the, if there's a good, that's the funny thing about that quote is it's like you know if the sausage being made. Well, if there's a good process, it's going to make it taste even better. You know, I mean, think about all the foodies and the artisanal, like you know, that whole mania in our culture right now. How you know, foodies are really, really into how you know, oh, well, this chicken came from this farm and it was slaughtered this way. And then they used, you know, there's that whole process is huge. It's a huge selling point now for a lot of the things that we consume, you know, but boyhood is like, that's a, that's a terrific example. I mean, one of the things I always joke with my wife about when I'm starting on a book now is like, oh, well, what, what's your like NPR, uh, like what would be your NPR kind of pitch for this? Like if you were sitting down with Terry Gross, you know, we're always joking, like what do they first start talking about? Cause in a lot of ways, that's kind of like what the sticky point is for a lot of these cultural artifacts is kind of their origin story in right. this weird way, you know, but boyhood has captured everyone's imagination in a lot of ways because of the process. Now I think it was, it was a shitty movie, uh, you know, then then there'd be something else going on. 
you know, but I think that the fact that it is a good movie, and that's something I always try to push, is it's like, look, you got to have the good work. Like, there's no doubt about that. But, you know, it's it's the stories you tell around your work that have a big impact, too. Because we all know people who are, you know, they do mediocre work, but of course we wouldn't name names. But, right. <laughs> you know, there's mediocre work out there that's finding its way to an audience surely because of the hustle or the way that it's been pitched to people, you know, and that's just part of the, uh, that is just part of our culture. And so if you're someone who cares passionately about your work, I think that, you know, you need to be at least somewhat invested in how it's put out there and how it's shared. Well, I think about, I mean, I'll name names. Like I think about 50 shades of gray as an example, (laughs) you know, from a literary perspective and, you know, it probably doesn't aspire to be like the next great Gatsby almost certainly, but, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of, uh, erotica out there. Like what this book has sold 90 million copies. Like what in the fuck happened? I I don't get it. You know, like why this, you know, like what, what magic fairy dust was sprinkled on this thing. And I guess maybe it it was like riding some sort of like wave from uh, twilight because it started out as fan fiction. But, um, you know, there is that element in the, in the world of art and commerce where sometimes things emerge and get this huge audience and you look at it and you go, how, like, you know, and, uh, yeah, I guess that's part of uh, it's part of the soup. Well, there's the there's the great line from Unforgiven, the Clint Eastwood movie, that I think everyone should have tacked up on their wall. I don't have it written on mine, but I, I should, and that is, "Deserves got nothing to do with it." <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Deserves got nothing to do with it. If you can keep that line in mind, that will keep like it's so much easier to keep your mental health in this life if you can remember. That quote from that movie, Deserves got nothing to do with it. This is not a meritocracy, and it never has been. <laughs> you know? it, takes, it, takes, it takes some luck in life. Yeah. I mean, Michael Lewis had, did, that wonderful, um, he did that wonderful commencement speech where he said, anyone who doesn't acknowledge luck in their success is not being honest with themselves. Right. You know, to not acknowledge that, so much of what happens in our life and the outcomes of our lives are, is due to sheer dumb luck. A lot of it, you know, of course it's not everything, but like, you know, just the fact that you're, you know, he, the point he was making is like, look, you know, you're, you're here at this Princeton graduation. Like you've been lucky, like just, just by being here, you've been lucky now. And if you have success later on, it will, you will, you know, but what Michael Lewis's point was is that, you know, if you're lucky enough to succeed, then you should have – you should feel a responsibility to kind of pass it on. Absolutely. And I, I, I don't – you know, I got to say, like, I worry sometimes that there's not enough of that. Um, there are obviously some shining examples of it, but there's a lot of people who I think fall into the trap when they get successful that they like, you know, this is something I achieved, like – I did this. It can be a. It can be tempting, I think, to to maybe give yourself too much of the credit, and uh, that that also can sometimes seem to me as like an expression of ego, you know, like uh, and and like a disavowal of like all the people who helped you get there, the lucky circumstances into which you were born, the breaks you got along the way that like really can't be explained, like just dumb lucky timing yeah. or right place, right time, that kind of stuff. And um, I I guess maybe I say this because, and I'm also talking to myself, like. Should I ever be in a position where, like, you know, some uh, kind of, you know, wild creative success comes my way or some kind of largesse? Like, I hope I have the good sense to remember what it was like to struggle and to pass it on and be generous 
in every way possible. And if everybody did that, we'd be in a, in a much better space. I, I agree. I could not agree more with you. And I also think if that happened, we would have a much more accurate picture of how this work is actually done. Because I think, you know, again, if we go back to that lone genius myth, that is something that gets perpetuated by history in a sense that we lose that kind of, you know, if you only hear the name Picasso or let's say even let's take a, let's, there's a, let's take Van Gogh. You know, if you, if you only hear the name Van Gogh, you forget that there was this guy named Theo Van Gogh who was actually the person who went around and showed all these works to people and gave Vincent the money to make the pieces. And it was only through his brother's collaboration and his support that these paintings were even able to be made, you know, that kind of thing. Um, there's actually a great book that was just written about this that just came out. There's this guy named Josh Shank. Um, yeah, he's, he's going to be on the show. <laughs> oh, is he going to be on? Well, tell him I said hello. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I think we're going to do something um, pretty soon that I can't talk about together. But but he's he's I, I found his book to be a wonderful you know, one of the things that one of the reasons he wrote his book, Powers of Two, which is all about creative duos, like, and the big example he uses is Lennon and McCartney. Um, you know, one of the reasons that he picked creative duos, or so he says in his intro, is that the lone genius myth is a great story, but it's not true. Um, the network theory, which is usually used to combat that idea of the lone genius, what Brian Eno calls senius, which is the kind of collaborative form of genius, which is a lot of the great innovations in art and culture are made by a whole group of people. That's the more accurate picture, but it doesn't make a great story. It's not very easy to tell that story of a network. You know, you have to do a lot of split screening and, you know, you have to like jump in time a lot. But the creative duo, what Josh says is that that gives us an opportunity to show a kind of dramatic tale unfolding in a creative life, but but get to some more accurate pictures of how creativity actually works. Well, I think that and I, I think it's especially useful to bring this up in the context of writing because, you know, I think nowhere is the lone genius myth maybe more uh, sticky than in the realm of literature, because it is something that you do in solitude. It is something that you do on your own in a sense, but, Absolutely. It's, it, but it's not the whole, I mean, you know, in, in, with Lennon and McCartney, like, yeah, you're in a band. So the collaboration is more explicit and you can kind of see it and hear it. Um, but you know, I think this is something that writers can often miss is that, yeah. you know, if you're, if you're just, if, if your whole goal is to just lock yourself in your garage or lock yourself in your basement office or whatever it is and, read your books and pound away at your keyboard and, and, and do that. That's only, that, that's like half the deal. And yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I got most of the, I've done 300 of these now. And I, you know, I'm consistently uh, hearing from people who have success at this, that they are part of a writer's group or, yes. you know, they're in some sort of support network socially and creatively that you would think, well, this person is so accomplished. Why would they need this? And the truth is that they're they're wise to to take advantage of it, and it's helping fuel them. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I am the writer I am, and there's, you know, there's a great line in Michael Chabon's Wonder Boys where he says, you know, luckily, 
luckily I manufactured her drug of choice. He, you know, he's talking about being a writer and, and his girlfriend loves to read, you know, and luckily, you know, my wife is, is a voracious reader and someone, and also a great writer on her own. And so for me, she has been completely instrumental in everything I've ever done because in a sense, everything I've ever written was thinking about her as the ideal reader, you know, thinking of her as the first person who would actually read this and imagining some of her reactions right away. Like if you have someone in your mind when you're writing, you immediately have another brain in the room because simply by thinking about what they might think about it, you've got kind of their perspective, you know, um, John Lennon's a great example. He used to just have one of his buddies just hang out in the room while he was writing. And they very rarely would they interact or would Lennon ask him, you know, what he thought about it. But it was just having another body in the room that made him kind of more prolific, that made him, made the stuff kind of come out more. And it was funny. I was just meeting with a, I met with an engineer and a songwriter the other day who was in town uh, here in Austin, and we went for coffee. And I asked him about that. I said, do you ever write with anyone else in the room? And he said, yeah, actually, I do. I have a buddy who I have come over. I, did, I used to want to write alone, but now I have this buddy come over, and it's the same thing he described with Lennon. Like, we don't really talk a lot, but I know what his tastes are, and just having him in the room helps me kind of form some of this stuff. But, um, yeah, you know, there, there's always someone, a lot of these writers, there's either a reader, you know, Stephen King talks about that. He writes for Tabitha, his wife, you know, she's his first reader. And then, you know, like Nabokov's wife, Vera, you know, like she, she was his secretary editor, you know, she's the one who pulled Lolita out of the flames of the fireplace, you know, I mean, there's there's always someone and and even when you think about the act of putting out a book i mean yes of course writers slave and you know there's just so much solitary work but there's always an editor there's the book designer there's the whole yeah. like kind of you know there's that whole machinery of publishing that does their job i mean anytime you see a writer up on the stage there's been a whole team that's made them who they are not to mention their agents or their you know sure well, you know, so it's, the, it's funny you yeah. talk you talk about these like uh, collaborations. First of all, it, it's worth mentioning like it's it's hard to find that buddy who can just uh, come over and just sit there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. A, right, that's a good buddy. But you, you got to move to Austin. And, yes. Uh, like, well, actually, old school Austin. You know, uh, the big problem with Austin right now is everyone's joking that it's becoming, you know, it's it's becoming less and less because of real estate prices and rent, you know, it's becoming less and less that kind of slacker place, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not, not everybody can just, like, hang out the way they used to, <laughs> and people are really asking themselves whether, you know, that's going to have an impact. And, well, of course, it will. But Yeah, well, and I, I, yeah I, being able to have that person around to just hang out, you know, that's pretty difficult. <laughs> well, and I was thinking, too. How do you live with them? <laughs> yeah, well, I was, I, was, I was listening to, uh, I guess I was listening to an interview or, or it was something Jerry Seinfeld was doing and he was talking about his daily routine where he gets on the phone with like his best friend every day, like every single day they live yeah. on, they live on opposite coasts and he just calls him up and they just talk for two hours. Yeah. Every day. And that gets, 
and that gets him I his material. That. Yeah, I mean that's his. I think like, Sein, yeah, Seinfeld is totally fascinating to me. I mean, reading more and more about his process and. It's really funny. He's such a he's such a professional and such a pro that he doesn't. This is this is something I've noticed with people who are really good. Like someone like me, I can interpret these people for you and I can talk about what they're doing. But these people who are really inside it, in a way, they don't even really think about it. Like when there was there's something I write about and feel like an artist that Seinfeld does. He keeps a wall calendar on the wall. And every day he does his joke writing and then he makes an X in the box. And then his job is just, it's not to write jokes. It's to put an X in the box for the day, you (laughs) know? Well, that went viral across the internet. You know, when that, when that article first came out, part of the reason I knew about it was like, it went all over the internet and just like spread like wildfire all over. And Seinfeld's response was, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. He's like, I've done all this stuff over the years. I've done all these comedy, you know, I've, I've written all these great jokes. I have all these achievements and that's what people are spreading around. This like completely stupid, uh, you know, his point was, of course you have to work every day. What are people, do people think this just happens? You know, I mean, he was so upset that everyone was, he was so upset that something so obvious was so helpful to so many people. Well, or, su- or, su- or surprising. You know, people were, like, genuinely surprised. That, like, exactly, oh my God. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think that's what's funny when you're at that level is you forget that there are so many people, myself included, out there that are finding it such a struggle to kind of work the way that, you know, these people, you know, it's just funny how those greats really lose sight of that, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. <laughs> Well, last, Especially when you've done it a whole lifetime. Yeah, and uh, and then uh, I think a good place to kind of transition and, and for us to wrap up is with the uh, with this idea of creative chain smoking, which I like as a as a phraseology, you know. But um, you know, a guy like Seinfeld, you know, just to kind of continue with him or any of the great artists, uh, writers, etc., um, they don't stop working, and yeah. you know, like they they finish one book and then the next day they start another. So, like, I'd, I'd like to hear you maybe talk about this a little bit before we finish, because, um, you know, like I think in the artistic realm, uh, you know, finishing a project obviously feels good, but it's always kind of a false summit. And if you really want to make a life of it and moreover, a career of it, you have to be a worker. So how do you chain smoke? <laughs> <laughs> I, I've always aspired to, now this is, and this is the other point I want to make. When I write these books, I mean, you asked me in the very beginning, like, who are you kind of writing this for? I I mean, a lot of, I mean, I wrote a lot of these books for myself, you know, because I was trying to like, you know, show your work more so. I mean, show your work for me was kind of, I was trying to remind myself of how I wanted to work. And one of the things I've always aspired to is to be able to be a chain smoker to like kind of use the end of one project to light up the other, you know, to take, to take whatever's still smoldering from the last project and then use it to ignite the next one. And, um, some of the things I collected over the years were just examples of people who did that on a micro level and then like a macro level, like, Hemingway used to end the day in the middle of a sentence because he knew he could get started the next day, you know, but then Joni Mitchell said that like whatever bothered her about the last album 
she'd use that as a way to start the next album, you know? And just like, I love that idea of taking whatever you didn't, you know, just jumping right into the next thing. And, you know, nobody wants to bring up Woody Allen these days, but (laughs) I feel like, you know, whether that's fair or not, but um, he is a prime example of someone who, you know, the minute he stopped shooting uh, one movie, he starts writing the next one. And yeah. I think, you know, you mentioned that Bob Dylan piece. Uh, I, I think one of the reasons, the thing that people forget about Dylan is he didn't really, you know, he went off to Woodstock for a while, but then for the rest of his career, I mean, he's just kept playing. He Man. plays like a hundred shows a day, a, or a day, yeah. a, a year, you <laughs> know, that would be interesting. <laughs> yeah, right. shows a day. Uh, but you know, he plays a hundred shows a year and then, you know, Seinfeld's the same way. You know, he's someone who has quietly done stand up for all these years to keep his chops sharp, you know, and just that idea that, you know, I, I think me personally, I thought, oh, well, if you're an artist, you get to a point where you just feel like you've achieved something and then you're just kind of done and then you just like bop around and you occasionally make a painting or occasionally you don't, you know? And the more I've met other artists and people who are working, there, it's I love that term you've used, false summit. I mean, there are no summits. You know, right. it's just this constant churn and burn and you just just keep working, you know, and the people who are really healthy that I know, they don't want to quit. They're not going to retire. You know, they're just going to keep doing stuff. So and, well, I was, yeah. <laughs> was going to say, so that begs the question, like what's next for you? What are you working on? I'm trying to get the next, you know, speaking of chain smoking, I mean, I, I have had horrible luck with each of my books, um, kind of, you know, figuring out what was next. I mean, Show Your Work immediately presented itself as the next project after Steal Like an Artist because um, people kept asking me that question, like, well, how do I get my stuff out there? I'm already creative. Like, how do I get success? And so I wanted to write a book for all those people who are asking me that same question. And the problem was is it's like what got me hung up wasn't the idea. It was actually executing it, which is always, you know, right. <laughs> most of the case in creative work. For me right now, I'm very interested in the fact that everyone has decided that um, the thing that I really detected from people when I was on tour last time, because I try to use the book tour as a way to kind of gauge what people are really interested in, what I detected on this uh, on this tour was that people really have this feeling that they need to be, like they have to make their passion their living, you know, that like oh, I have to like, I have to figure out how to make money off my art or I'm not a success, you know? And so I've been kind of, I've kind of reacted to this in this really hard way because as someone who, um, as someone who now makes a living off what I love to do, I know it's not all rosy and that it can actually hurt the work just as much as help it. And so my next project, I'm trying to, I'm trying to look at stories of people who kind of made, you know, people who made art for, I'm trying to investigate that idea of, of what, what, what you make art for, you know, and that, that sounds really vague, but. No, I get um, it. I get it. And how people, cause there are people out there who make great work, but who do it on the side. And there are like, um, what do you call them? Outsider artists and people who have these kind of like, uh, it's almost like hobby art that winds up being oh, over the course or of like the like sun- 
or like Sunday painter, right? Like yeah. there's the great, that, that term Sunday painter, you know, I just read an interview by these two Russian artists who they said, um, I forget their, I can't pronounce their names, but they're, they basically said, you know, when we were living in Soviet Russia, you would work for the government, you would paint propaganda all week for, for the, you know, for the government, but then on the weekends you would do your real passion work. And there was beauty in that because it was there was freedom at the end of the week, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and then they said we came to America and all of a sudden we were free, and now we just work all the time. You know, they were just saying like, what does that mean when all of a sudden you can work all the time and then you don't have any free time because like every day is Sunday. Right. Like if you're if first you're a Sunday painter and then you become like a professional painter, what happens when every day is Sunday? Is it is it special anymore? You know, and so it was just this interesting point. But I, I'm interested in. I mean, my, my goal has never been like, here's how to get rich by doing, art or being more creative. Like my goal has always been like, hey, here's how you can be a little bit more creative or how you can make work so it can make your life better. You know, like whether it, whether it makes you rich or successful or whatever. I think there's there's value in practicing an art. There's value in dancing or singing or painting or whatever. And so what I really want is I want everyone to have that in their life, whether, you know, they make money off it or not. And so that's what I'm trying to like investigate right now. And so we'll see what happens. <laughs> well, yeah, I wish you luck with it. It's been such a pleasure talking with you and uh, thanks for your work. And I wish you luck on what's next. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is a blast. Okay, guys, there you go. That's Austin Cleon. Wasn't that great? Uh, go get his books, Steal Like an Artist and Show Your Work. Both of them are out there, uh, available from Workman Publishing. You can find Austin online. Uh, it's at austincleon.com. He's on Twitter. His handle is at austincleon. He's on Instagram. He's all social media. He's got a Tumblr. I'm pretty sure he's on Facebook. Maybe he's not. Tumblr, Instagram, Twitter. AustinCleon.com. Check him out. If you're in a funk, go get his uh, books. He also has a book out called Newspaper Blackout. I uh, forgot to mention that one. So thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the great music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. Hey, uh, could I ask you to please go review the show over at iTunes? Rate it, review it. If you have nice things to say, that would be wonderful. That helps the show, helps the rankings. Just go over to iTunes, search out other PPL with Brad Listy, and then uh, rate it, review it, two minutes of your time. And uh, while you're at it, go get the app, the free official Other People app. It's the best way to listen to this program. The app is free. It's available wherever apps have, uh, are available. You get the app, and then the most recent 50 shows are always available free of charge. Uh, they, they upload automatically. You don't have to do anything. They will just be there magically waiting for you. You can download episodes to listen to offline. If you don't have a Wi-Fi connection, you can take shows with you, listen anywhere you go. And then uh, best of all, if you want to stream the archives, sign up for premium right there within the app. You just sign up for premium. You have access to the full archives, every single episode, uh, all 300 of them. And uh, it's cheap. Two bucks a month, five bucks for six months of access, or... $9 for a full year of access. One-time payment. $9. 75 cents a month. What a bargain. That is a bargain for you. <laughs> Remember that from Eddie Murphy? That is a bargain for me. I used to quote Eddie Murphy as a child. I'm one of those people. That's my generation. Anybody out there feel me? So, 
uh, I feel good. These are good books to uh, kind of uh, re, you know reboot your head when it comes to being creative. Remind you how the thing is done. Simplify it a little bit. Boil it down. Streamline it. What have you. So if you're out there struggling, you need a little boost, a little pick-me-up. Go pick up one of these books, or both of them. They make a nice pair. And uh, I am going to continue to work. I've been working in a coffee shop lately, just getting out of the house, focusing, bearing down. It's a great coffee shop. I think part of, uh, you know, I have this thing about uh, not wanting to write in public, but for me, with a little kid in the house, it's easier for me to get out of the house in order to focus. And I think if you're going to do that, or if you are forced by a necessity to do that, then it's good to find the right place. And I think I've found my place. It's dark. It's weird. There's always a table. Parking's easy, which, uh, you know, means something here in the big city. So, knock on wood that it continues. Please remember that Bertrand Russell was so inept physically that he could never learn to make a pot of tea, and that Cicero once said, quote, what is the use of being kind to a poor man? Isn't Cicero supposed to be like a wise philosopher? What a dick. <laughs> thanks again to Austin Cleon. Go check out his books. And uh, thanks to you guys for listening. I'll be back again soon. I like this the way the music just underscored that. I'm reaching the end here. Hopefully my daughter stops having nightmares. Hopefully I get some sleep. That would be nice. Uh, I'm heading out of town on vacation next week. Going to try to deliver programs. Uh, I've mentioned that on previous episodes. We'll see what happens. I'm going to be racing against the clock. Can you hear it in my voice? Oh, God. It's going to be nice to be out of town. It's going to be nice to take another week. I think uh, I need to recharge. Even though it's going to be kind of a work vacation, I'm still going to write. I'm going to write, carve out, you know, carve out a couple hours every day uh, to go sit down and write. But otherwise, I will be uh, vacationing with my family. Family vacation. Can you picture that? (laughs) 